Well, howdy. Uh, we are so excited you are here with us this morning, and we have an amazing treat. Uh, this is my friend, Jason Johnson. Let me tell you a little bit about Jason. Uh, first, he is part of the uh, Fighting Texas Aggies class of 2002. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah hey, super even old. if you weren't, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. What? Super old. No, super amazing. Okay, so yeah. he is he is a legacy of, of Agginess. Uh, so that's one part that you, you really want to listen to him. The second part is this. He is the director of church ministry uh, with an organization called Christian Alliance for Orphans. And uh, But he is not going to speak specifically about that. But I'll tell you what, Jason travels all over the place, speaks with churches, helping them to really develop orphan care within their congregations. Um, but also he's a man who loves the Lord. He planted a church uh, in the Woodlands area. He has, done, has great church experience, but also... Also, he loves the Lord and, uh, and really is going to teach us well from the Word of God. So would you please welcome with me Jason Johnson. Thanks, man. We're not really friends. Kevin just found me on the street and said, you kind of look like me. I need you to fill in for me on Sunday. I do have a little more hair. He, he keeps his a little more close to the, the scalp than I do. But no, but we're friends and it's cool to hang out with Kevin and hear all about what uh, the Lord is doing here with you guys uh, at, here together over here at the high school. So fun to be a part. As Kevin mentioned, uh, my wife and I graduated in May of 02. We actually met on campus. Anybody have a, a class in Harrington building? Yeah. All right. So upstairs, I think it's room 209 or 207 of Harrington. Seat 115 and 116, I believe it was, is where we met, all right? So I think a couple years ago on our anniversary, we snuck into a class and we, we went and sat in those seats and while the professor was, was, uh, was speaking, uh, was teaching, every time he turned his back, we'd take a selfie of, 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 of us and then we, we snuck out just uh, to, to remember our time there. And so uh, the story, the short version is, uh, don't skip class. You never know what will happen, right? Intercultural communications class, totally boring and worthless. But uh, eight and a half months later, we were married. So the story is, uh, this was pre-Facebook, pre-social media. I know, just mind blown. Like, what do you, what? What kind of world is that, right? So our professor says, go online, and we're like, on what? And make a profile, a what? And tell me about yourself. And so all of us are totally confused. We figure out how to get online and make a profile about ourselves. No pictures, just words. And so I write about what I was doing and who I was. And what I didn't know is you could go on and check other students' profiles. And so there's this girl in class I didn't know existed. She goes on and looks to a couple profiles, reads mine, and immediately falls in love. They're online, on the Internet. So our relationship began online, uh, which... Um, is okay, I guess, these days. And she goes and tells her roommates, hey, read, read what this guy wrote. This guy's legit. And they're a little confused. Why are you so... That's weird, right? So then about a month goes by, and uh, her story is she's walking to class, and she's praying about, catch this guy's praying about where to sit. Who does that, right? So super spiritual, loves Jesus, praying about where to sit. I'm sitting in the back of the room as far away from, from as many people as I possibly can. Anybody else like that? Uh, you walk in the class, and where are, where's the most buffer around? And that's where I'm going. So I sit as far away from people as I can, totally introvert. I see this girl out of the peripheral vision of my eye, walk down the stairs, stop, turn around, and look directly at me. Okay? Little kind of struck me. She comes and sits down next to me, and I scoot over in my seat. Like, <laughs> you're cute, but totally cramping my buffer zone here, right? Later on, I find out that that's the moment while she's praying about where to sit in class. That's the moment that it hits her 
she needs to turn around and come sit by me. Okay? It dawns on her, this is the guy I read about online. Okay? So we get talking there in class, and uh, we walk out of the back of the class, and I say, by the way, I don't, I don't normally do this, and by that I mean like talk to girls or introduce myself to girls, uh, but my name's Jason. And she says, Jason Johnson, right? I'm like, whoa, that's back up. Like, <laughs> weird. So I ask her where she's going. She says to Blocker. You guys are with me? So Harrington to Blocker. Uh, I actually had to go to, is there a problem with Blocker? I don't know. Man. I had to go to the MSC, which is the opposite direction of Blocker. So she says, I'm going to Blocker. I say, me too. So our relationship began online, and then it started with lies, right? So I walk her to class. I run back to the MSC to meet up with my buddy, uh, who I'm now late to meet. And I say, sorry I'm late, man. I just met my wife. True story. Eight and a half months later, we were married. So don't skip class or just... Do what you're supposed to do. You never know what's going to happen, right? Show up where you're supposed to show up. That's the point of the story. But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. You see it on the screen. What I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning and dissecting a little bit and pressing into and, and kind of searching ourselves a little bit is this idea of success. And so in that time of my life, walking this girl to, to Blocker, um, spending my days at A&M, working in ministry, and just trying to figure this thing out. I went to A&M with the ambition to, to go to pre-law, go to law school, and make as much money as I possibly could. When I was a kid, I used to tell my friends and even my parents, and my parents would vouch for this today, that my dream as a kid was to grow up and wear a suit and tie, work in a tall building downtown, and carry a briefcase to work every day. That, in my mind, was the idea of success. Now, at the age 39, I own one suit that fits, and I hate wearing it, right? Anybody else hate wearing suits? Like, if I have to wear a suit, I had to go speak at, a, uh, at an event uh, in, outside of Atlanta a couple nights ago, and it was a fundraising event, and I emailed them and asked them, hey, what's the attire? i totally nervous about what their response was going to be, right? Please don't say suit. Please don't say suit. And they emailed back and said, you can wear a suit if you'd like, and I took that as an out. I would not like, as a matter of fact, <laughs> to wear a suit, right? But back in the day, that was my definition of success. I want to wear a suit, work in a tall building, and carry a briefcase to work every day. Have you ever seen a movie called Family Man? It comes out about every Christmas. They show it. They rerun it. It's Nicolas Cage, which, you know, whatever. But it's a great movie. I watched this movie towards the end of college. And here's the premise of this movie. It's a guy that has pursued success and wealth. He lives in the penthouse downtown. He drives the great cars. Single guy. Total freedom. uh, Unlimited resources. And he lives this amazing life. But then he's given this opportunity to go back to a moment, a pivotal moment in his life, where he made a decision to not marry this girl that he loved and to pursue his dreams. And he's given him the opportunity to go back and see what his life would look like had he chosen differently. And so he has thrust into this family life. He's now suddenly a family man. He works at a tire, uh, a tire he's a, sale, a tire salesman for his father-in-law, right? He wakes up in, in sweatpants and old shirts and kids bouncing all over him and dogs slobbering on him. And he works this okay job. And, and at first he really struggles with, I don't lie, I want to go back to my, my life of money and, and power and influence and penthouses and freedom. But then over the course of the film, he suddenly, he, he slowly begins to fall in love with, with just the normalcy of being a husband and a father. And the whole point of the movie is, is really to kind of call us uh, to the table and say, what's, what's your definition of success? 
Because it's such an elusive thing. And most of us are in a position right now where, where we are constantly thinking about it, whether we know it or not. And just to kind of warn you about what happens in your life 10, 15, even 20 years from now in the position where you are, is that it never really escapes you. It's something that's constantly lingering around. And so we need to come up with some really strong handlebars that we can hold on to. Because there's going to be moments in life when we look in the mirror and we just don't feel very successful. And we feel like we don't have what it takes and we feel like we're failing at this thing. And everything that we hoped would come true is in fact not coming true. And so it's important for us on a consistent basis to pause and to consider what is true success. And here's the beautiful thing about scripture is that you'll often hear it said that, uh, you know, um, we, we want to we preach scripture in a relevant way. Or we want to preach scripture in such a way that it comes alive. And I don't necessarily like those phrases because there is nothing that man can do to make scripture any more relevant than it already is. It speaks to every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life, it relevantly speaks to in deep and profound ways. And, and none more uh, than, than this particular topic for me. Lately, And I'll share a little bit about our story as we progress in this. This idea of success. So I want us to rethink success in terms of of what the Bible has to say about it. All right? Hebrews chapter 11 is a fascinating passage of scripture. And most of you are familiar with it. We call it the hall of faith. Which is uh, just another cute Christian thing that we do. We like to put cute Christian names on it. But you know what? It's actually not a cute chapter in the Bible. The whole premise of Hebrews chapter 11 is this idea of faithfulness, and it redefines what faithfulness in the kingdom of God looks like. And it starts out this way. It starts out in a way that we all love. This is, this is, this is the kind of faith that we all want. It says, by faith, people pass through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. You've heard the story. The, Egypt, the, the Israelites are fleeing, and God parts the Red Sea, Okay. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Sansom, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And we're all like, yes and amen, sign me up for that faith. I will buy that book on the bookshelf, living my best life now, right? I want to overcome and I want to achieve great things. I want to live the kind of life that shuts the mouths of lions and causes the Red Sea to split and the walls of Jericho to fall. I want to live a victorious life that overcomes. And I don't know if you've caught on to it, but there is a, there is a movement now. There is a, 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 a primary narrative that's being pumped out through famous and popular preachers and songs that we sing. And the general theme is this overcoming theme. That we are overcomers and we're going to overcome and you can live your best life now. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. We want to see the walls of Jericho fall. We want to see the mouths of lions shut. We want to see the Red Sea split. But the question lingers constantly, what happens when it doesn't? What happens when my faith leads me to a place where the walls of Jericho don't fall and the Red Sea doesn't split? Have I failed to be an overcomer? Because everything that popular Christianity is preaching me today is that you are an overcomer. And you can live your best life now. 
And increasingly more, I'm just, I'm just kind of coming to terms with the fact that when I was sitting in your seat, I wish someone had, had suggested to me an alternative way of thinking about success and what it means to truly overcome. What if overcoming in faith and, and following Jesus is not so much about overcoming and the outcomes that we want to see happen, but it's about overcoming the need to control the outcomes and to trust God with them. And so the first half of Hebrews chapter 11 is really great. Your best life now. You want to see the walls of Jericho fall? Here's seven simple steps, right? But then the second half, the second part of Hebrews 11 takes a significant turn. It says, now there were others, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain even a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. I'm not buying that book. Who wants to buy that book? Seven simple steps. To live a faithful life that leads you to become destitute, living in holes in the ground, and stoned to death. No, thank you. That doesn't fill churches. That doesn't sell books in the Christian bookstore. Those videos online don't go viral of the famous preachers. But this is the truth of Scripture. Is that sometimes faith leads us to a place where we see the victorious outcomes. And so let's just break it down. The first half of Hebrews 11 says says things like this. Faithfulness will sometimes lead to the sea being split, the walls falling, kingdoms conquered, justice administered, promises gained, lions tamed, flames quenched, swords escaped, power restored, enemies routed, dead resurrected. That this is overcoming. This is the victorious life. And we all love that. Sign me up for that. Now the second part of Hebrews 11 has a completely different list. It says some were tortured, jeered, flogged, imprisoned, stoned to death, sawed in half, killed by the sword, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and outcast. And now watch this, guys. The end of Hebrews chapter 11 says this. These were all, all of them, all of them, these were all commended for their faith. You know, Scripture doesn't say that at the end of our lives, our goal is to hear from God, well done, good, and successful servant. No. Is that we would live a life worthy of God ultimately standing before us one day and saying, well done, good, and faithful servant. And so success in Scripture is less about the outcomes that we can produce. Success in Scripture is more about our willingness to be faithful. And sometimes faithfulness is going to bring us into positions where we see the Red Sea split and the walls of Jericho fall and the mouths of lions shut. And now sometimes faithfulness is going to lead us into places where we are stoned to death. And in all of that, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. See, at the end of the day, God is more pleased by our willingness to be faithful along the journey than he is concerned with our ability to achieve a certain outcome through it. And so what if overcoming was less about controlling outcomes and it was more about controlling our need to produce a certain set of outcomes and trusting God with them and just being faithful along the journey? That doesn't mean that we don't work hard. It doesn't mean that we don't grind. It doesn't mean that we don't do everything possible to see the Red Sea split. But it does mean 
that sometimes when it doesn't split or the walls of Jericho don't fall the way that we want, we can still rest in the fact that God is sovereign and in control. And I can trust him with the outcomes, even if they're not the ones that I would have written for myself. Success is less about controlling outcomes, and it's more about our willingness to be faithful. And so just a little bit about our story. This is, this is a family picture uh, from not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before. And, and you see a lot of girls there. I live with a lot of girls. There's a lot of girls in my home. When I was 19 years old, I was working in student ministry, and I told God, uh, all I want is girls. All I want is daughters. There was a dad in our student ministry. He had four daughters, and they all loved him, and they were were all daddy's girls, and he was just a really cool dad. And I said, that's what, I want to be a really cool dad like that guy. And I feel like I've been successful at that. My daughters might disagree with that, but I like to think that I'm a really cool dad. But God was gracious enough to give me four daughters. That's what he's given me. And part of my prayer was, God, I just really want to be a dad to girls. The other part of my prayer was, God, boys are gross and I just don't want to be, I just, I was, I was one. I am one and I don't want one, right? There's going to be a lot of boys in my house in the next coming years, right? But at least I can like tell them to go home, get out of here, right? (laughs) And you'll see this addition to our family. A part of our journey the last six years has been in the foster care system and and opening up our home. And and the last couple of years has included bringing a 17-year-old who's now just turned 20, actually, uh, into our home. And at the time, she had a little baby boy, Jordan. He's now two. And she now has a little baby girl, uh, Brooklyn. And so a 20-year-old girl, and her life has been full of struggle, full of hardship. It's mostly been hard, only punctuated by moments of peace and clarity. Very, very difficult life. And she moved into our home and, and, and uh, made it very clear that her, her goal was to turn 18, become an adult, and, and to leave. And, and things were going well and up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and there was a point where we just had a really, really, really hard day. And at the end of that day, she decided she was going to run away. And so she did. And I was keeping my dad up to speed with some of the stuff that was going on through text message. And late that night, after literally the worst day that we've probably ever had with her, my dad texts me and he says, does it feel like failure? Does it feel like you failed? And what I wanted to do is t- type back to him and say, dad, this is why, this is why people have father wounds, right? Thank you for that, right? <laughs> You've just increased my therapy bill. You know, does it feel like failure? Well, as a matter of fact, it does, dad. Thanks for asking, right? Everything that we've wanted to produce in this girl's life, all the outcomes that we're trying, that we're fighting hard to see in her life, all the worst case scenarios that we have fought against have come true in her life. Does it feel like failure? Yes. But I didn't respond to him in that moment. And it took me some time later on that night. And I resolved, I can't put my head down on the pillow tonight without having a good answer to that question. Because everything inside of me wants to say yes. It feels like we failed and it's all been worthless. But is that true? And so I eventually texted back to him some form of this answer. You know what, uh, Dad? Yeah, it, it, it wants to feel like failure, but I'm convinced that it's not. Because I, uh, I don't believe we have failed Guiana. I think that we were successful with Guiana the moment we first said yes to her. That was success. We can't control the outcomes. But we can control our yes. And at the end of the day, God is less concerned with your ability to control a certain set of outcomes than he is with your willingness to simply be faithful and say yes and to trust him with the rest. It doesn't mean that we don't fight hard. It doesn't mean that we don't work hard. 
It just means that our identity and our security and our hope is not tied up in our capacity to produce a certain set of outcomes that only he can. So I just want us to walk real simply through three keys to faithful success. This isn't an ingredient. This isn't a prescription. This isn't saying do these three simple things and you will always experience uh, positive outcomes in your life. Because the reality is, is you guys are going to say yes to some really hard things that God asks you to do. And at the end of the day, it's going to feel like you failed at them. And you're going to have to put your head down on the pillow at night and have some really good answers for your soul. As to whether or not what you just said yes to God in and the outcomes that you saw produced through it were success or failure. And so I just want us to have a little bit of handlebars, like some framework for us to be thinking through uh, as we navigate this journey and as we pursue faithfulness with the understanding that faithfulness is our success. And so key principle number one, this idea of simply enjoying the journey. I don't know about you, but for me, I was, I've always been and always was this kid that when I was eight, I wanted to be 10 because that's double digits. When I was 10, I wanted to be 13 because that's teenager. When I was 13, I wanted to be 20 because that's, now I'm not a teenager anymore. Like, get me out of, get me out of this teenage world, right? When, when I was 20, I wanted to be 25 and working. And when I was 25, I, I, just never content and never satisfied with where I was. Not long ago on one of my uh, work trips, I had the opportunity to go to Chicago and I uh, took my oldest daughter with me and we had a blast. And, and for me, traveling has become very rote and methodical, okay? They, the, the goal of traveling for me, I do it so often, is to get from point A to point B with as little interruption and inconvenience as possible, okay? No flight delays, no lost luggage, no traffic on the way to the airport. Just get me to where I need to go. When I started traveling, I used to like to sit by the window so that I could see the views and, and look out. And now I'm like, give me an aisle seat so I can get out faster than everybody else, right? Just get me where I need to go. And then my daughter comes along with me to Chicago. And my mindset is the fastest route from point A to point B, just get us there. But it was fascinating to watch her be on the journey with me. Because I'm just rushing through the airport. That's what I want to do. Let's rush. Let's hurry. Let's get there. Yet she's enjoying every moment of the journey along the way. She's fascinated by the the airport and and sitting next to the window and just watching her feel kind of the thrust of the airplane as you take off. And looking out the window as, as, as earth becomes smaller and smaller and the views and just soaking up the journey. As we finally get to Chicago and make our way through traffic and we're, we're rounding the highway towards downtown right at dusk and the sun is setting and just the skyline is beautiful. And again, for me, it's where's our hotel? Get me there as fast as possible. Hopefully there's no traffic for her taking pictures of everything and just totally soaking up the journey. And it reminded me on that trip with her that I've become so rote and so methodical in my journey sometimes that I fail to see the beauty of the process. I just want to see the outcome. Just get me to where I need to be. That sometimes I miss seeing God in the process. And so principle number one is just learn to enjoy the journey. Learn to be where you are and to see God where you are. And to appreciate that where you are is right where God has you to be. And that you can trust him with what's to come later. But right now he's simply saying, I just want you to be where you are and see me where you are. 
There's so much about life that says, I can't wait to see God come through here. Or I can't wait to see what God's going to do over there. And I think that God's up, up in heaven sometimes going, hey, just stop. But do you see what I'm doing here now? Right? Like all that stuff will come. But what about now? Don't miss out on seeing me in the process. Genesis 22 is, is one of the hardest passages of scripture for me and, and any father to read. Because it just doesn't make sense. It's the story of when God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham says, okay. I go, what? How, how can you do that? And so the story continues. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, uh, Abraham, father, Abraham says, yes, my son. Now check this question out. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac has no idea what's going on. You're the lamb for the burnt offering, bud. No idea. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering for my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham is walking this journey with this crazy thing that God has asked him to do, but trusting God in the process. I believe, I believe right now, that God is being faithful right now, and we're going to see that in the end, but I believe that God will provide. And so I'm, I'm, I'm walking through this process that God has asked me to walk through, trusting him with what the outcome is going to look like. And so Abraham looks up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram, Caught by its horns, he went over and took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So Abraham's about to bring the knife down on his son. The angel says, stop. And Abraham sees a lamb that God has provided. And now check out what these words mean in this passage. I love it. I just came across this recently and it changed the whole thing for me. It says, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That word provide literally means seize. So you can read it this way. The Lord sees. He sees the whole situation. He is not unaware. He is not distant. He's not surprised by what's going on. He has seen everything that's playing out. And he is in total control of it. I think one of the ways that you and I can learn to enjoy the journey that God has for us is by trusting in the fact that he sees me and he's totally in tune with me and he's, he's, he's totally engaged in this process. He's not absent, he's not distant, the Lord sees. And when I can trust that right now, no matter my circumstances, the Lord sees, then it allows me to find joy in the place that I am now and not just always be looking for what might be coming later. That the Lord sees us now. We can trust that God sees us. And so here's the big idea. Don't be so fixated on God coming through in the end that you fail to see his presence and faithfulness in the beginning and the middle. So a couple of key ideas, handlebars to hold on to. Number one, your current situation is not your final destination. That where you are now is not ultimately where you're going to be. 
But where you are now, God sees and God, is, God has a plan and God, wants to, and God wants to see you enjoy him where you are now, no matter how good or difficult it might be. And if faithfulness is our success, then success isn't something that we just wait to achieve one day, but it's something that we can actually live in right now along the journey. That success isn't tied up in the outcomes that we can produce. Success is wrapped up in our willingness to say yes to God right now and trust him with what's to come as a result of that. That success isn't some elusive thing that may or may not come one day. Success is something that we can live in and enjoy right now, today. And so the first idea is enjoy the journey. The second is to fix your eyes. Fix your eyes. Change the way that you see See differently through the lens of the kingdom of God. And not long ago, uh, my wife and I found one of our daughters in bed struggling to fall asleep to the point of tears. And we finally got out of her what was bothering her. What's bothering you, sweetie? And we were shocked by her answer. She said that what was bothering her uh, was Hitler. Yeah. Surprised us too, right? Like, Really? And what we learned that night is that she shared with us she's doing a a research project at school uh, and they were able to pick anybody that they wanted to study and our daughter chose Hitler to study, right? Part of me as a dad was like, good for you, girl, go for it, right? Like pick the hardest thing. The other part was obviously it's too much. She had seen things, heard things, read things that had brought her to the point of tears. And in her words, to a certain extent, she said, I'm just afraid that somebody like that is going to do things like that to me. That's legitimate. So here's what's true. I want my daughters to know about that part of our human history one day. It's important for them to know that part of our human history. But there's also something to be said for protecting people from certain pieces of information that they're not quite ready to emotionally or spiritually handle. Make sense? I don't want to, I don't want to deprive her of knowing certain things. I want to protect her from knowing certain things too soon. That's a big difference. This is what I like to call the mercy of not knowing. The mercy of not knowing. We see God do this in scripture. Yeah, we see God do this in scripture often uh, with, with people. We see him do it uh, with, with Abraham. He doesn't know what's to come. And it's, it's for his benefit. And so scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so here's what scripture says. Is, uh, for every one thing that you see God doing, there's a million things behind the scenes that you can't see him doing. And that's where I want you to fix your attention. Fix your attention not on the things that you can see, but on the things that you can't see. Have you ever seen these viral videos that go around on Father's Day especially, uh, and they're of dads like rescuing their kids from danger, and their kids don't even know that they're in danger? So like they put their kid in this little uh, toy car and the car flies down the hill towards little baby brother and dad sees what's about to happen and he runs down and scoops little baby brother up from being run over by this runaway car. Little baby brother has no idea that he was in danger. Have you ever considered the fact that what if just like that God protects us from certain things and we're not even aware that we were ever in danger? What if even this morning, this will blow your mind, What if even this morning on your way here, God stuck his hand out and saved you from something that you didn't even know you were in danger of? That's what a good dad does. He runs down and he scoops us up and we had no idea that we were even about to get run over. 
For every one thing that we see God doing, I guarantee you there's a million things behind the scenes that we don't see him doing. And scripture says, focus there. Trust there. Because if our identity and our security is tied only to the things that we see, the things that we see are so transient and up and down. Some days good and some days bad and some days peaceful and some days chaotic. And scripture says, don't focus on the variables of up and down. Focus on the constant of what you can't see. The constant of God's faithfulness that within the variables of up and down, the things that you can see, the constant that remains true is that God is faithful. And God is working in ways that you can't even see on this side of eternity. Fix your eyes there. And so God does deprive us of certain pieces of information to protect us, to protect us from things that we're just not quite ready to see. And we see, we see him do this through this thing called the mercy of not knowing. There are so many things that we don't know that God is doing. And it's mercy that he doesn't allow us to see those things. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave everything he knows. He says, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Notice this language. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. That's everything that he's ever known. Everything that's comfortable to him. His complete security and identity. I've lived at, I'm in my father's house. This is my country. These are my people. This is my land. I'm well known. I could stay here. Call it quits and live a comfortable life. And God says, I want you to leave all of that and go to the place that I, I have not yet shown you. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a little insight into what Abraham was thinking. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. When you read about the story of Abraham, you see some high highs and some really extremely low lows. That his journey was not one of of butterflies and dandelions. It was a hard, rigid journey of faithfulness. That in the end, God blessed with extreme promises. But it was that moment of Abraham first saying, yes, yes, I will leave everything that I know to go to a place that you have not yet showed me. I will say yes to me now and I will trust you with the outcomes. If God had showed Abraham everything that was going to unfold in his journey, the moment he first said yes, I imagine it would have been a lot harder for Abraham to say yes to God. This is the mercy of not knowing. That God doesn't deprive us of certain pieces of information. He protects us from certain pieces of information. It's the mercy of God that he doesn't show us everything that will unfold along our journey the moment we first say yes to him. What Follow this. It's the mercy of God that he doesn't show us everything that's going to unfold the moment we first say yes. Why? All the hard would be too unbearable. If God said, I want you to say yes to me now. And now here's all the hard things that are going to happen when you say yes. How are we responding to that moment? God, I, ooh, I take it back, right? Forget it. But God says, you don't need to know that now. You don't need to know what's to come now. All the hard would be too unbearable, but all the good would be too unbelievable. I want you to say yes to me now, and here's all the amazing things that's going to happen as a result. I think some of us would step back and go, man, nah, too good to be true. You wouldn't do that for me. It's the mercy of God that he says, I want you to say yes to me now. Trust me with all that other stuff. He's not depriving us of certain pieces of information. He's protecting us from pieces of information that we're just not quite ready to hear yet. And that's okay. 
I think that some of us live lives where we're just like, God, you reveal to me. You show me. You tell me now. Tell me everything that I want to know now. And then I'll say yes to you. And God, I just don't know that God makes that deal. He says, actually, how about you say yes to me? And then I'll, I'll tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. So I just want us to be free from the need to know things that God doesn't necessarily need or want us to know yet. And to live in the moment and find this freedom to say yes and to trust him with the rest. And so let's wrap up with the third principle. Here's here's some handlebars to hold on to when we talk about fixing our eyes. Number one, success is not simply measured by what we can see. If it was, then in those moments of faithfulness, when the walls of Jericho are not falling, the enemy is going to want to convince you, based on what you can see, you clearly are a failure. But we know that's not what scripture says. Success is not measured simply by what we can see. So it is very, 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 very difficult for us to say, based on what I see in this person's life, the money that they've accumulated, the position, the power, the family, this lifestyle, clearly they are more successful than this person who might not have that lifestyle. That's not the economy of God. What's true in the economy of God is that this person who lives a much more meager, humble lifestyle might actually be more successful in the eyes of God than this person that's got all the accolades in the world. Because God doesn't measure success in outcomes. God measures success in faithfulness. And so you can't see everything that God is doing. Yet. You just can't. And it's the mercy of God that he doesn't show it all to you now. Because if he did, it would just be too much for us to handle. And so, enjoy the journey. Fix your eyes. And then finally, we'll wrap up with this. Measure in quality. Measure in quality. The world measures success in terms of quantity. How much do you have? How much power do you have? What's your house like? Your car, your family, your wife, your husband. Uh, Notoriety, significance, influence, status, quantity. The world measures success in quantity and God measures success in quality. And so we measure in quality. It's not necessarily about all the things that we bring to the table. It's about what Jesus brings to the table for us. And so in Mark chapter 12, there's an interesting encounter uh, where um, this, they're in the temple and people are giving their offerings. And rich people come by and they put a lot of money in the, in the offering. And then a poor lady comes by and she throws in two small coins. And Jesus in this moment radically redefines a word for us that's important for us to have a new def- definition of. And so Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And right there in that moment, Jesus redefines the word more for us. Because in the economy of this world, more is measured in quantity, But in the economy of God, more is measured in quality of sacrifice. All these rich people are putting in a lot of money. And then this poor widow comes in and puts in two small coins. And Jesus calls his disciples around and says, guys, I want you to see what's going on here. This lady, not in terms of quantity, but in terms of quality of sacrifice, has put in more than all these rich people, some total combined. And he redefines the essence of what more is. More is not about quantity. More is about 
quality for us. Quality of investment and quality of sacrifice. It's not about all that I bring to the table. It's about God saying, bring whatever you have and watch me work. We see this consistently throughout scripture. The loaves and the fish, I'll take that and I will multiply it exponentially to feed thousands of people. You only have faith the size of a mustard seed? No problem. I can move mountains with that. I don't need much from you. I just need all from you, whatever quantity that is, and watch me multiply it exponentially. And so if God can move mountains, if God can move mountains with mustard seeds and feed thousands with a few loaves and fish, then he certainly has the capacity to expand and extend what feels small and simple into something significant and substantial. And so life for you is less about all that I bring to the table. And it's more about whatever I've got in my hand and offering it up to God and trusting that he can multiply it exponentially in ways that I can never possibly imagine or do on my own. That's success. And I think in those moments, God calls, Jesus calls his disciples around and says, boys, I don't want you to miss what's going on here. She doesn't have much, but she gave all that she had. Well done, good and faithful servant. So let me close with this. We need to reframe our weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul helps us do this. He pleads with God, take this thorn. Take this thorn from me. Take this thorn from me. And and God says, no. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, okay, if that's true, if your grace is sufficient for for me and your power is made perfect in my weakness, if that's true, then I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And so Paul teaches us how to reframe our relationship with our weaknesses because in the world, you are supposed to hide your weaknesses. They're sources of shame and embarrassment. Don't let anybody know about the areas in your life where you are weak. That is embarrassing and shameful. And so put on this front as if you've got it all together. And Paul says, actually, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. I, on a certain level, am going to be proud of the places that I'm most weak because that's where the power of God is put on display the most. I might not have a lot to throw into the offering plate, but what I do have becomes a platform upon which God can exponentially increase that by his power. And so weakness is no longer a source of shame for us or a source of embarrassment for us. It has now become the primary platform upon which the power of God can be made most visible in your life. We don't have to be ashamed of our weakness. We don't have to be embarrassed by what we are incapable of. We can actually say, here it is, Lord. And it becomes the platform upon which his power is multiplied over and over and over again. And so let's learn to measure in quality. Success is not measured in quantity of resources, but in quality of investment. And you don't always have to have what it takes because God does. And that's enough. Enjoy the journey. Fix your eyes. And measure in quality. And in doing so, I believe that you will live a successfully faithful life. Let me pray for you. Father, I do ask for wisdom and I ask for clarity. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak into the recesses of our hearts and our souls and those places where we are really struggling with the tension of all of this. Because it's real and it's true. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us to, to by faith, begin to reframe our understandings and our definitions of what it means to live a successful life. Father, I pray that you would increasingly so begin to dwell deep into the hearts of these people, a desire to be faithful in all things 
and to trust you with everything. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in your name we pray. Amen.